Welcome to the 26th, the official podcast of the Mecklenburg County Bar. As an MCB member, we know you deserve every possible benefit for your dollar. Our focus is to provide exclusive insight and resources ranging from business development to member spotlights and everything in between. You serve the public. Now let us serve you right here on the 26th. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this episode of the 26th, an MCB podcast. I'm Robert Ingalls, and I'll be your host. If this is your first time joining us, this podcast is intended to serve as another tool among the multitude of resources afforded to Mecklenburg County Bar members. We're splitting the podcast into seasons, with each season highlighting a different topic based on requests from MCB members. And this first season is all about business development and features attorneys from all walks of practice, from large firms to solo shops, sharing their unique stories of building practices. We're going to hear what worked and what didn't, and where they see the future of business development going. Now, after you finish this episode, just click that subscribe button in your preferred podcast player, and you'll get notified when new episodes are available. Our guest on this episode is attorney Laura Noble of the Noble Law Firm. Let's go ahead and jump into it. So I started my business about 10 years ago. I wasn't really planning on starting a business. I uh, needed a job and no one would hire me because I had a weird background and I stepped out for a while to be a mom. Mm -hmm. And so when I came back, uh, I wasn't a traditional lawyer and no one thought I would be a good fit. So I started taking clients and that grew to the point where I was able to hire uh, another attorney. And then I immersed myself in law practice management and business development and marketing, things that most lawyers, I think, hate, but I actually really, really loved it. And from there, uh, just continued to grow and develop. And now we have, well, now we are the largest plaintiff's employment law firm in North Carolina. Wow. And we just opened our brand new office in New York City. Lovely. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Kind of an office uh, by accident, it sounds like. It was. It really was. I always thought I'd be a really good number two, and yet I I could never find the number one person, so I became it. So I love it. Yeah. So you said you had a different background. Tell us a little bit about that. I started out of law school at the DA's office in Brooklyn, New York, and I was a prosecutor for a little over three years. It was probably still the best job I ever had. It was so much fun. I mean, you just, you know, your, your cases are on the covers of the newspapers. You're riding around in cop cars. You get to look at dead bodies. I mean, it's great. It's good stuff. It's so like TV. It really was. It really was fun. So was that what you went to school for? Was that kind of the goal? No, actually, I thought I was going to be like a legal aid defense attorney or something in nonprofits. But I graduated at a time when people weren't really hiring, and um, I heard about this opportunity, and I knew I wanted to litigate. I knew I wanted to be in the courtroom. So I interviewed, and I got the job, and didn't think I was going to like it. You know, didn't think I wanted to be the man. But my, you know, the people that I worked with were so good and smart and dedicated, and we made absolute, you know, pitiful, pitiful wages. So you did it because you loved the work. And um, I really liked helping people. And I really, you know, enjoyed getting to know the victims and kind of trying to help them get some closure, some sense of justice. So it it all fit well for me. 
Gotcha. And what was the next step after that? Like what made you leave the best job you'd ever had? Right. So I got married in the interim and my husband got a job opportunity in London. So I took a leave of absence and thought I was going to come back. But after I was out in the real civilian world, I, I, I just felt that I was a little bit burnt out of crime and punishment every single day. Yeah. Particularly at that period of time in New York, things were pretty rough. I can't imagine. Yeah, I did. Um, I did a year of criminal defense work right out of law school, and because that's what I went to school for, that's what I was going to do. And it, uh, it, it'll get to you quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really was. It, it's funny now to me when I go back to New York and I see like the Bed Stuy and the Williamsburg that are all you know sort of gentrified and fancy. I mean, those were neighborhoods that I went into with bulletproof vest on with the cops that I was with because right. it was burning, you know, trash cans and broken windows and the like. So it was, uh, it was exciting and fun, but it, it was a lot to process. So mm-hmm. after that, I went to a nonprofit and I was their uh, general counsel at Covenant House New York. And so I worked with homeless and runaway youth. I did some great, some advocacy work at the state level pulled together a, a, a team of attorneys and an advocate. So that was a really interesting way for me again to sort of feel like I was helping people and I was in the um, advocacy business. But it was the 90s and I had the misfortune of getting pregnant, which they had never dealt with before. So that didn't work out well for me. Um, if I had known then what I know now. But um, so I ended up leaving that position and Oh, in the interim, I'm sorry, I worked for a law firm for a year, but absolutely hated that. Um, It was very traditional, very boring. You know, it it was about who made millions in their litigation against another business that I didn't care for. So I knew that wasn't going to be for me. Yeah, we we had a guest on the podcast recently who had kind of a similar experience in a big firm. Yeah, it just was not for me. So my husband got another offer, this time in Germany. So I went with him there, and we had two more children. And when we came back, we decided to, well, I wanted to go back to New York and New England. He wanted to go out west where it was warm. So we settled and compromised on uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So east and warm. And that's when I started uh, looking around about thinking about what I wanted to do uh, as an attorney. And and I had such a strange background. No one really thought where I could fit. And employment law spoke to me because it, it, it felt like it combined all of those elements of my past, right? So that it, there was a social, social justice element and there was a helping people element and there was a business element. And I had real clients that, that I could sit across from and, and talk to and understand and try to help. And small businesses. I advise small businesses as well. And so it just, I really just fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. And when you started it, was there any real thought that you were going to go full time and, and big with this? Or was it more of a, I'm going to try this out? And then were you still thinking about a job? I was still thinking about a job. I met with a mentor, a woman who became a mentor of mine. Uh, and she was so smart and and articulate about why she did it and how she loved it that I told her I was going to work for her, and she said she wasn't hiring, and I said, I don't care, (laughs) and I, as she said, showed up at a basket on her doorstep, and just sat in her office and said, I'll do whatever you want, you don't need to pay me, Yeah. and eventually she let me work on some cases with her, and I moved from sitting on her couch to a chair and a table in her hallway, 
And then I moved from the hallway into an office next to her. And then <laughs> from the office next to her, I hired an attorney and eventually moved out into my own into my own space. Yeah, I love that. It's uh, just don't take no for an answer. Yeah. I'm going to keep showing up until you get a restraining order. And <laughs> <laughs> thought about it that way. But yeah, fortunately, <laughs> she had a good sense of humor. Right. So. Yeah. And that's uh, there's there's kind of this movement I see sometimes in uh, in people coming out of school that they don't want to work for a certain amount of money or they don't want to do an unpaid internship and not even to get into the legality of that. Like I've done multiple unpaid internships just because I was like, can I stay here? Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, I just think it's important to see the value, especially in a crowded marketplace. Absolutely. Like the experience you can get from somebody is so is, is invaluable. And if somebody will let you just sit on their couch while they take phone calls, you're going to learn something. And so I think there's a lot of value in just showing up there. And, and, and regardless of whether you're getting paid, you're getting paid. And look at it from that perspective. Absolutely. And the idea of being curious and being open and, and interested in learning. And by that time, you know, I was a married woman with three children. I had been an attorney for a long time. I mean, there, I had to take a huge amount of uh, humble pie to sort of sit in somebody's office and say, I know nothing, teach me. Right. Um, but I was very enthusiastic and I had knew I wanted to do this and I was not going to be deterred. And so it worked out. Yeah. That not being deterred is important as well, because when you look at the Charlotte market, uh, there's people that are, you know, people that are just coming out of school are overwhelmed because there's so much competition. Right. And, and, you know, some of the easier things to get into are the, the most competitive mm -hmm. and they, you see them struggle a lot. One of the pieces of advice I always try to give is mentorship. Is, is talk to somebody and that's, you know, that kind of stuck out in your story. What advice would you give to someone who is in that position that maybe you were in where you didn't really have the experience of running a firm? You didn't have the experience of practicing that kind of law. And you were, I think, I don't know what Chapel Hill looked like at that time, but I assume it was not, not a small market. Right. Well, the first piece of advice I would direct to the law schools because I think they're doing a huge disservice to the law students. Most of the job opportunities for the larger, more prestigious law schools, and we have plenty of them in the area, go to the top 10 to 15% of the graduates. And there's sort of this mutually mutual plan between the big law firms and the law schools that say, hey, we're going to give you money and you're going to send me those law students and we're going to you know, donate to your library and we're going to have these great events and, and you're going to send us those law students and, and everything's great. The problem is that for the 80% of the law students who don't graduate in those top 10 or 15% tiers, they don't have the same kind of job opportunities. And many of them have to go and, and hang out a shingle like I did. And they have absolutely no guidance whatsoever. And the when you approach law schools, as I have, and said, you know what, you need to be teaching these students, you need to teach them about marketing, and you need to teach them about, you know, business development, you need to teach them about accounting, and you need to teach them about, uh, you know, hiring an administrative assistant and what that looks like. They look at me like deer in the headlights, like, what are you talking about? We're lawyers, we don't need to teach people that. And so you're graduating these people who know nothing about that or even, you know, client services or how to file a summons and a complaint. They know nothing. Yeah. And they go out and they're expected to be a lawyer and, you know, serve their clients. It is absolutely, it's almost malpractice in my opinion. So that's the first thing I would say. Law schools have to start educating people to actually provide legal services to clients, not just people who are going to write big fancy memos for big fancy law firms personal bias, but I feel very strongly about that. 
for the law student who's graduating and is looking for his or her next career step, you know, getting an understanding of what you love and what you're passionate about is, is really the first step. You know, I know there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, I can do a lot of different things. I just want to make money. I don't care. I think that's garbage, frankly. I think you don't do well unless you really love what you're doing because it's hard work. Yeah. So find that thing that you love and then go get that opportunity. Go find that, that uh, you know, internship. Go sit next to someone that we have always said we don't hire people straight out of law school. It's not what we do. We need experienced attorneys. Uh, we want attorneys who can take their own caseload right away. We hired our first attorney right out of law school this year, and you know why? He started with us two years ago and never stopped coming. Yeah. <laughs> made himself so invaluable to, you know, our clients, our firm culture, our administrative staff, not to mention the attorneys. He's part of the family at that point. Exactly. That we couldn't imagine him not being there anymore. So yeah. we're like, okay, I guess we're going to hire you. Yeah. I love that. Show up. And he just talked himself into a job by being valuable. Yep. He really did. And find out the things that you're really good at. Yeah. And then and then demonstrate those skills to your prospective employer. Right. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's a good way to court mentors when you're you're still in school. And that's that's a recommendation I give too is don't wait till you're out of school to to start creating that network because the bar association, I don't know the MEC bar, but the NCBA also, they always have these events that are for the young lawyers and the law students can join these groups and they can start meeting people in the local community. That's one of the things, I don't think I was the greatest law student, but one of the things I did well was I showed up and I talked to people. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I, just, I kind of have an outgoing personality, so that helped me a lot when I finally did get into the real world and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Because I went through that whole thing of you start the law firm and just, just starting the firm was overwhelming for me. And then I got to figure out how to deal with my books and, and all the other things that you said. And having a few different people who I already considered friends at that point, I could be like, can you help me? You know, one of my first big criminal cases, I, I got asked for something that um, I had no idea what they were talking about. I didn't even know the word. <laughs> right. And I called my mentor. I was like, I need you here. <laughs> right, right I mean, now. 15 minutes later, he left his office, came down. And that's just the value of creating those relationships. And again, because we do such a poor job of educating our lawyers that we think the only important skills to have as a lawyer is that you can look at a set of facts and apply it to law and, and come up with an answer to, to that legal question. And that is one skill set that's, of course, important as well as being able to have a you do, do oral arguments and being able to, to write clearly and persuasively. But it's equally important to be able to do exactly what you said, which is to establish relationships. Because you're, uh, you are going to be in a lifetime of trying to persuade people. You're trying to persuade your client to hire you. You're trying to persuade opposing counsel to give your, you money and settle the case. You're trying to obviously persuade a judge. You're trying to persuade a jury. Even in your writings, I tell this to my new attorneys all the time, it's about storytelling. Just because you're writing a brief to a federal judge does not mean he or she is not human. If you can tell a compelling story that interests them, engages them, like you're sitting across the table with them, building a relationship with them, you're going to be much more likely to persuade that judge. Right. Yeah, that's a, that was a big takeaway. One of my uh, trial teachers was big on that. She's like, everything's a story. You know, tell the story all the time. It's going gonna, it's gonna to grab their brain because the brain wants to know what's going to happen next. Exactly. So tell that story. I like that. That's good advice. Uh, so when you first started your practice, I... One of the hardest things that people have after building the practice and creating a place that you can then service it's the clients is making the client show up. 
So, you know, moving to this new area where you didn't really know anybody, how did you start generating these leads that, that turned into work? The, it, using the same techniques I was just talking about, which is that I made myself invaluable, really, within bar communities. So I volunteered for everything. I worked with every committee I could think of. I wrote. I was the one who wrote the paper. I was the one who showed up and gave the speech. I was the one who organized the committee or organized the party. I took every single attorney to lunch that I ever ran into, and I called people and invited them to lunch and or to, met them for coffee or met them wherever they were. Um, and started to ask them about themselves and you know what worked for them and how their law practice did. And I gave freely of whatever it is that I had to give. So if they had a wage and hour question for one of their clients, even if I didn't know the answer, I would research it, find out about it, and get back to them. So I would try as much as I possibly could to give value to them so that they would think of me as a valuable resource. And they would sort of experience my sense of uh, understanding of employment law. So when it came time for them to refer a client, there I was, top of mind. Right. Yeah. The uh, the last guest we had said she has a nine to five and a five to nine. <laughs> I like that. That's great. You know, she uh, she felt like it was part of her job and, and still is to to be out there making relationships and meeting people and being involved and organizing, and that uh, helped her establish herself as you know a particular attorney in her profession, and and you know led to you know really led to her being having good business. And I hear from some new attorneys that say, well, Laura, you know, you're just naturally extroverted and that's, the, you know, it's easier for you. And I get that. But there are still other ways even for people who don't feel like they do well at small talk or networking events, which, which frankly, I would, I don't think they're all that useful anyway. But if you're somebody who's, you know, more of a writer, you're more introverted, then, then use social media, you know, get on blogs. Um, uh, use Twitter and Instagram and all of that to start making, you can still make those kind of connections sitting at home in your pajamas. Mm -hmm. You just have to make the effort to to get out there in whatever way it is um, to let people know that you are going to be a valuable resource and that they can trust you. Speaking of, you know, social media and online marketing, at what point did your firm start utilizing that and, and how valuable do you see that for your practice now? It's extraordinarily valuable. I would say we invested heavily in it starting about five years ago. And we do all sorts of uh, SEO uh, projects and, 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 you know, through Facebook, Instagram, um, as many opportunities as you can. As you know, it's, it's a, it kind of builds upon itself. So you just have to keep going at it and going at it and, and monitoring it and, um, uh, putting resources into it. Sure. And are you actively engaging? Like if, if people come to your page and say something, are you actively engaging with people, like kind of starting a conversation or is it more just putting things out there? We do both. So I think there's a tendency of lawyers to want to keep all the information to themselves because that's our stock and trade. Sure. Right. right? So we don't build widgets. We tell people things. Yeah. <laughs> we give them answers to questions. So I think for a lot of lawyers, the idea of you just putting all that out there on your web page is, is terrifying. But the reality is, is that no one wants a generic answer to their question. They want to know what about specifically about their employment situation and what to do about their boss that's harassing them, even if you give them all sorts of information generically about what happens in a sexual harassment context. So I find, give give it away. Yeah. Give it away as much as you can. And then that person's going to read it and feel like they 
that you know what you're talking about mm -hmm. so that they feel comfortable enough coming and talking to you. Yeah. I mean, this is the information age too. The idea that they can't get that somewhere else if you don't give it to them is, is absurd. You're shooting yourself in the foot because they're going to go to the next blog or the next podcast or whatever is offered for someone to explain their problem to them. Let them know, I know what you're going through and that I know how to help you. And, and by depriving a person of that, you deprive them of the ability to develop any relationship with you. They go to your website and they see that you've been practicing law for 35 years. And, but that doesn't really mean anything because the next firm says, oh, well, our, our attorneys have been practicing for 150 years combined. And <laughs> I hate that combined thing. Oh, my gosh. Why do attorneys do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's, I don't think that the public is making decisions based on that <laughs> no. anymore. No. And the, the other thing that the public is not making decisions on is how accomplished you are as an attorney how many awards you have or where you went to law school or, you know, what, what great articles you put. And I, I think that's important kind of as a just, are you generally not, you know, a, a wacko? Like, do you actually know what you're talking about? But if it's like me trying to pick my neurosurgeon, like I, I'm not going to know <laughs> if he or she is good or not. Right. How I'm going to, I'm going to, how am I going to know? I'm going to ask someone, I'm going to ask my primary doctor I'm going to go check them out and see that they kind of look like they know what they're doing. And then I'm going to go and talk to them. And if I know, like, and trust them, I'm going to hire them. And so I think lawyers make a huge mistake when they do their marketing that they talk about themselves and they talk about how great they are. And what they need to be talking about is how they're going to fix the problem that you, the client, are having. Right. You are not the hero of this journey. The client is. Exactly. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, I'm Greg Hicks, and I'm the Director of Digital Media here at the Mecklenburg County Bar. Thank you so much for listening to The 26. You know, as staff, we want to do our best to make sure that you get the most out of being an MCB member. So that's why, in addition to this podcast, MCB members are eligible to reserve meeting and event space here at the Bar and Foundation Center during normal business hours. You can head to mechbar.org benefits to see all that the MCB offers, and we hope to hear from you soon. Inside your firm, now that you've grown to, did you say the largest employment firm in North Carolina? That's right. That's incredible. Is there a business development program that you now use? Like when you onboard a new associate, is there a program like this is the noble firm, this is how we do things? We do have an orientation process that, that every new employee, every new employee does, not just associates, because we believe that bringing in all of the people who are going to be part of the client journey, is it's really important for them to know what our philosophy is. So we, when we do the onboarding, we have the, the person spend, you know, 20 minutes, a half an hour meeting with everybody in the firm, from the front desk person to the litigation paralegals to our back office people. And everybody is able to articulate our mission and vision and our dedication to creating the best possible client journey. Again, I think most lawyers think it's about, you know, I'm going to write the best brief and I'm going to, you know, have this perfect cross-examination at the hearing and my client's going to be ecstatic by that. They really don't care about that. What they care about is, do I feel like this firm has heard me and they understand me and believe me? Are they my advocates? Are they going to bat for me? You know, will they remember that I have my child's birthday today? Do, do, do I feel like these people are, are folks that I'm always going to remember about, you know, they were the ones that, that, that became part of my family. They were right. the ones that were my advocates in a way that somebody who's just, you know, 
filing their brief and, 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 you know, talking to the other attorneys about how, you know, what great arguments they made, th- those people are not going to move your clients. Yeah, it's, you're looking to develop that relationship where if they saw you, you know, years later in a different setting, they would still have a very affectionate feeling for you. And I, I'm fortunate, we are fortunate that we're in the kind of business where we're getting intimate details of people's life. Yeah. You know, I have family lawyer friends who say, you know, we kind of do the same thing, but in different contexts, because your job and your career is such an important part of your identity and, and an important part of how you spend the majority of your time. So when bad things happen there that affect your self-identity, that affect your self-worth, those are traumatic events. And when you come to us and tell us about how you were sexually assaulted at work or how you were discriminated against or how you know people used this horrible language uh, to you and then fired you when you complained, this is a really devastating and embarrassing, humiliating thing to talk about. Mm. So you really have to respect that person sharing that with you and and honor that in a way that you then go forward and provide legal services. Yeah, it's very hard for them to talk about. And, and the last thing they would ever want to feel is like if there was any judgment. Um, Absolutely. Even if it wasn't something you felt like you were putting out there. Right. And it's, and it's just, I don't know if you've ever been fired from a job. I, I work for myself for a reason. <laughs> I, uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm kind of proudly unemployable. Nice. Uh, is one way I've heard it put. I, I always knew I was going to be number one, un- unlike you. I, I just, I'm, uh, it's, it's hard for me to, uh, to kind of take orders. Right. Um, I'm very good with mentors and, and, and listening to my business coach, but, you know, it's, I, I enjoy running the ship. What kind of law did you practice? Uh, I came out doing criminal defense because that's what okay. I thought I wanted to do. But right. I learned it took me a year to go. I can't I couldn't sleep at night like it was it, I took it home with me. And so it was really, really hard on me personally. Yeah. Um, but I found out after six years of law in general that law just wasn't for me. It was really hard on me. Like I took all of it home. It's hard. And I didn't want to be anywhere but the courtroom. And I feel like that kind of work, it can be even more intense on you. Mm -hmm. There's so much on the line. Like if you're in a point where there's a jury involved or or there's a judge making a decision, a lot is riding on that. Absolutely. And it was just the the weight of that for me personally just wasn't something I could do every day. I loved it. I I missed trial more than anything, but it was, it wasn't something I could, it, it didn't fit like my highest and best use in the universe. You know, I had a little baby, I had a wife, they were very important to me and I wasn't able to give them my best self. Absolutely. Well, that's why there's, that. you know, there's so many studies that you know about of lawyers having higher than normal substance abuse issues and, and mental health issues yeah. and divorces. And it is a very stressful job. Yeah. A lot is riding on you personally succeeding for this right. client. I mean, what other professions uh, force you every three years to take a you know mental health substance abuse class? <laughs> right. Well, that says a lot right there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I don't want to keep you here all day, but I had a couple more questions. Is there any software that you're using? Uh, I know a lot of lawyers are starting to rely more on um, getting away from paper, but also even with their, their relationships, they're getting away from the Rolodex and starting to invest more in CRM systems. Like, is there anything your firm's using? Yes, we do. We are using a number of technology tools. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons we've been able to expand so quickly is because we use repeatable systems it, we're not, you know, uh, put the post-it on the, uh, you know, right. desk and so hope someone sees it kind of firm. So we use a tool called Lawmatics mm-hmm. for our intake process and our C- CRM process. It is just a fabulous analytical tool for the data. So we can look at, you know, what counties the cases are coming in, what type of cases they are. 
where, you know, what the referral source is, how long they've been employed, when they were fired. I mean, the dates, the, the, the tools that we can, the cases that we didn't give a consult to, the cases that we did, the cases that converted to an agreement, we can run all that analytics now with the push of a button. Right. Instead of having to like open up the file and look at handwritten notes. Well, this is even on the CRM side. So I think a lot of attorneys go by gut feeling. What are the good cases? You know, where are the, who are the good, you know, who are the most offensive, you know, employers that we want to look out for? We don't have to guess. We, we have the data. Yeah. So that's been, and, and who are our best referral sources? Again, we don't have to guess. Right. We, like, I don't have to remember, oh, it was John who sent me those four cases. It's like, oh, I, no, actually, this other person sent us 12 last exactly. year. Exactly. I have a report right in front of me. Yeah. And, I, and then from Lawmatics, we move, when we're doing our case, actual case management, we use a tool called Action Step. It's a program out of Australia. Not a lot of people use it. But what I love about it is each step of the process is, is literally a step that you push a button on, and then it generates a series of tasks and it also keeps the time between each task. So I can run a report and look at how long it took our intake people to get the person signed up on their own private client portal, how long it took for the attorney who's handling the case from the time they signed up to send the demand letter, how long it took them to get the complaint filed, the time from the complaint filing to the discovery went out. I can get all those reports. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is struggling with their particular caseload, it's going to generate it for me yeah, right away. You're just going to see it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the task lists are so wonderful because we do repeatable things. And again, attorneys think that we're all, you know, our own best chefs in, you know, in our <laughs> Michelin restaurants. But we actually do a lot of things over and over again. And like the surgeons now who use checklists and the airplane pilots Absolutely. who use checklists – we're no different. I feel like you've read the checklist manifesto. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I've read it more than once. I haven't read it more than once. That's good. But, right, so you think you're going to remember. You won't. So you just use the, that, that generates a checklist. It says, have you, right. you know, you know, go, gone through all of the steps in order to file a complaint? There's seven things you must do every single time. Put it on a checklist, and you don't have to remember it off the top of yeah, your head. And it's basic, but when, you know, when they do the studies and they look at the numbers, like just the simple act of instituting a checklist in any business dramatically changes the uh, number of errors that they see. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's been incredible. And that's something I've, in my life now, like my entire business, like it runs on a checklist. That's great. And, uh, you know, every step of the way, like we all have it on, we use Trello as our, as our practice management. Uh, and every step of the way has a new checklist. And nothing moves on until every single thing has been checked. And I think that's a great thing for law because uh, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd have made it nearly as long as I made it without some kind of practice management telling me, here's the things you need to do, but also telling me, here's where you need to be. Here are your deadlines. Because that's one of the problems you see come up is just, you know, missing deadlines. That's the thing that used to wake me up at night is, oh, I missed a deadline. Oh, I had a hearing that I missed, like those kind of things. And when you have everything in your practice management software, there's no danger. So we just started a new program called Law Law Toolbox. I don't know if you've heard of that. It is the coolest software. So it's integrated now into our case management system, into our action step. And you go into the matter that you just started. You get a drop-down menu. It says, where are you filing the case? North Carolina Superior Court. When was the case filed? You know, February 21st, 2020. And then it populates according to the rules 
every single deadline that's going to happen with that case. That's fantastic. I mean, stuff that you didn't even remember, right? About like yeah. when they can, first time they can file a summary judgment motion. Like we never put that in our. That's life changing. It is amazing. And then you go back in and now, you know, how things get counted backwards from when the trial is. So as soon as you get the trial date, you plug it in and it populates every single thing under the North Carolina rules that you have to have. That, that sounds like it should be mandatory. Right? Like <laughs> We actually get a discount on our malpractice now because we have it. There we go. That makes a lot of sense because that was a big pain point for me is, you know, trying to read the local rules and know and then try to remember where I am and what I'm doing and get it all on the calendar because a lot of that was manual entry. Exactly. Looking at a rule, typing it in, making sure everything was set up right. That's fantastic. It's very cool. Yeah. Well, that, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll make sure we put that on uh, on the blog and in the show notes as well. Yeah. That sounds great. No, I, I am a, I, I, my staff teases me because, you know, they're, they're always like, keep the new shiny object away from Laura. Oh, God, I'm the same way. <laughs> I love the tech. Um, I missed the ABA tech show this year. I really wanted to, to go, but I've been doing too many other stuff. Yeah, but that was actually, my, my firm's going, uh, my company's going next year. We wanted to go this year, but we had another event that same weekend because no one's really in that podcast space there yet. So we're definitely going. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Because what right. is it, next weekend? Yeah, it's yeah. next weekend. Yeah. So, you know, we use Slack for all of our internal communications. We, we've been, you know, long time uh, users of eFax. We use net documents for our case management system. So we really are as close to paperless as you can come and, and try to do everything so that you can practice from anywhere in the world and it, within our firm. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the CLEs I, I do as well. Is is how to get your how to take your firm online and into the cloud and, and as paperless as possible. It kind of amazes me that people aren't that are that still you know say, well, I have to go to my office and I I left the pleadings there. Yeah, like if oh. you can't practice from the beach, right. you're not set up right. <laughs> on your iPad, right? Absolutely, like right. sitting on the beach, like you should be able to do that. There's a Facebook group that I'm part of that's literally called Lawyers on the Beach. I love it. Yeah, I love that. So before I let you get out of here, what has been your biggest pain point as far as running your business? Because I know that lawyers that are out there, they're running their businesses and they're running into all kinds of problems. I like to hear from other people, like, what are you struggling with or what did you struggle with? So getting the compensation right for our attorneys has been a struggle. I think I think we're there. I think we've got some good plans in place. Moving away from the hourly billing Lawyers say that they hate it and they don't want to do it, but actually moving them into flat fees, particularly around litigation. Mm -hmm. Scary. Very scary. Very hard for them to. Yeah, if you misprice that, you're. (laughs) Right. But the reality is, is that, you know, we negotiate with clients all the time. People who do hourly billing are constantly renegotiating with their clients Mm -hmm. and knocking things off or adding, you know, oh, well, we we didn't know that this hearing was going to come up, so now your bill is going to be $8,000 more. So if we find ourselves in a litigation that's gone absolutely sideways, again, because we have a relationship with our clients, we can go and say, look, we we billed you out at $5,000 for this. This is no way going to be $5,000. How do you feel about $8,000 for this? We think it's fair. Here's why. And most of the time the clients go, yeah, okay, that's fair. You're right. right. Or conversely, if we if we thought that it was going to be a very complex litigation or extra hearings and then suddenly, you know, we win at the motion to dismiss level and 16 claims are cut out, I'm not going to continue charging my client the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've given discounts to them and said, look, I only need one attorney on your case now for one hearing. 
Yeah, now there's been a lot of, of chatter over the past number of years about moving to more of a flat fee. And I think, uh, I think it would cut down on a lot of the stress and the chaos because that's is a problem that you see a lot of lawyers running into is, you know, forgetting to keep up their time and, and then trying to figure out how to handle that in the, you know, in, in hindsight. And I know some lawyers get in trouble for that. And the idea of just being like, okay, this is done, this is paid, and now we do the work mm-hmm. instead of counting the minutes of the work that I'm doing. And, it, you know, it makes you more aligned with your client. I know how much I'm going to get paid for this, and I'm going to do what I need to do to get this claim where I want it to be. Yeah. Not, well, I can't do that because a client's going to be upset that I spent too much time doing that or, or you know, you're sort of in attention. It's sort of you against the client when it's an hourly billable mm-hmm. rate, right? Because they, of course, want you to do as little as possible, but win. Yeah. <laughs> and you want to do everything and not overbill them. And then it also puts pressure on young, you know, newer attorneys who feel this enormous incentive to, to bill. And then, you know, we have padding issues. And I just think it's a terrible system all around. Yeah. I really enjoy the alternative billing models. Yeah, I'd be interested in knowing how much time a firm saves over the course of a year by not billing. Because when you're billing, I mean, you have to stop what you're doing and write down the fact that you billed. And then you've got to compile all of that. Somebody's got to send out an invoice. Uh, I'd be interested. That's got to be a lot of time. So I mean, right. it has to be ultimately, if you're doing it correctly, it probably it ends up generating a lot more revenue. So what I'm interested in is how that would work in the uh, attorneys' fees awards. And I haven't seen any cases on it because we do a lot of federal employment discrimination work, and they have a uh, fee shifting provision. Right? Mm-hmm. If you if you win on your claims, you can ask for attorneys' fees to be awarded. And typically what the, what the court does is they look at your hourly, you know, look at all of your records and say, okay, that was a good use of your time. That wasn't. And they go literally line by line in this giant spreadsheet and they cut down your time accordingly, however they decide. And then they give you an award. I wonder what a judge would do if we say, we just charge $3,000 a month. We've done it for 12 months, Your Honor. Here's our fee. I don't know. I'm a little scared to be the first person to do that, but <laughs> I, mean, I bet the judges would love that. Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, a lot easier. And, you know, dealing with all the math and everything. Like, okay, perfect. Right. Yeah. Well, take one for the team on that one. Find out. (laughs) All right. Before I let you go, where can uh, the listeners connect with you? So our website's uh, www.thenoblelaw.com. It's three words, the noble law. And we have offices in Chapel Hill, Raleigh, Charlotte, and New York City. New York City. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was lovely. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The 26th. Head to mechbar.org to hear more from this podcast, suggest future topics, and review member resources. 